1: 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, we'll be talking about recovering from the effects of alcoholism, both individually and someone else's, and I have two guests, one from Al-Anon Family Groups and one from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to welcome Emma and Lyndall to the show this afternoon. Hi.
2: Hi. Hello.
1: Today our special focus is the upcoming Vicki Park Convention, a celebration of AA members with less than 10 years recovery and with Al-Anon members also participating. Uh, due to the COVID restrictions this year, it's going to be an online via Zoom and it'll be held on Saturday, the 9th of October, 2021 and importantly, it's free. So to start with, Lyndall, talk a bit about your life. You're an AA member. That's right. Uh, you've been in Alcoholics Anonymous about three years.
2: That's right, yeah. I've been in the fellowship for probably, yeah, a little bit over three and a half years, and I'm sober um, 11 and a half months at the moment, so getting close to one year sober again.
1: Wow, terrific. Really, yeah. Very exciting. <laughs> okay, so we usually talk about growing up and things like that. So what was your family life like and what are the things that sort of influenced your life growing up
2: sure um yeah i grew up in a small country town i had um i mean family life was was pretty good like my mother divorced from my father and remarried so i ha- i had a blended family if you like but we all lived together well you know we just had a pretty general upbringing, I think. Living in a small country town, I sort of always felt like there wasn't really a lot to do. I felt, even as a kid, like, uh, or especially as a teenager, I felt like I got bored a bit, you know, just didn't really feel like there was much to do. So, a lot of the, you know, my influences, I think a lot of it came from my friends just hanging out together and trying to make up our own fun, I guess.
1: <laughs> so, um, what was school like? Was that a distraction?
2: Uh, School for me I always again I just always felt like I was bored at school I was I was a bit terrible at school in that you know if I didn't have a strict teacher I would sort of run mark. I'd always be the kid that was like talking in school and disrupting the other students you know often on my grades it was always like Wendell's really you know she's really smart and she's capable of anything but she just doesn't apply herself in school.
1: (laughs) So what did your mum think about that?
2: Oh, she wasn't very happy because my mum's academic and yeah, she just wanted all of us, she was like ducks of her school or something, and she wanted all of us to do really well at school. And so, yeah, she wasn't very happy that I was normally the kid who was disrupting other people.
1: Right. So, what about your family? Did you have any alcoholism or drug addiction in your family?
2: Uh, no drug addiction that I know of. Um, certainly, none of my family members have ever identified as alcoholic. But there's definitely a lot of people in my family that are very, very heavy drinkers, and that I would say are alcoholic. But they just haven't necessarily, you know, identified or or gotten um, any sort of help for that. But yeah, definitely a family of heavy drinkers. My on my biological father's side you know him and his parents are heavy drinkers on my mum's side my mum doesn't really drink a lot but her parents were very big drinkers all my siblings are really big drinkers yeah a lot of very heavy drinking in the family
1: yeah it's a pretty common societal thing for alcohol to be fairly normalized in in a family so with your friends then did you find it difficult as a as children with alcohol around you?
2: don't necessarily know if I found it difficult um like there definitely wasn't any there wasn't necessarily like you know violence in the household or anything like that that I hear a lot of through other members so I don't I don't remember the alcohol causing problems within the family if that's what you're asking
1: yeah okay so when were you exposed to alcohol yourself
2: I had my first drink, I would have been about 13, I think. I think I had tasted it a few times and then the first time I got really drunk was I was with one of my very close school friends. I was at her house and um, her mum was drinking and her mum allowed me to have some of her, I think it was like cooking sherry or something, really (laughs) (laughs) foul. And she allowed me to have some of that and I kept drinking it and drinking it, drinking it, and I got really, really drunk and I was really sick and I yeah vomited everywhere but I just I loved it I loved it from the first yeah time I drank and that was that was about 13 and then yeah I was, didn't necessarily drink every weekend obviously that early age but yeah it carried on from there
1: yeah so what yeah. was it about the alcohol
2: uh I loved the feeling of loss of control I loved the feeling of you know, the craziness of it. Like I, I knew it even from early in my drinking career that it was really like it was madness that you you consume this substance that makes you do things that you wouldn't otherwise normally do. And I drank to blackout like from a, a very young age as well. Like I drank to blackout all the time. And so, and I knew that was really weird too, but I, that was kind of what I loved about it. Like I just, I loved everything about it. I loved, yeah, the whole feeling. I loved the numb, like the physical numbness in my body. I loved the feeling of just not being in control. Yeah, I loved everything about it. I couldn't get enough.
1: <laughs> so, did you get into any trouble?
2: Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean like no, definitely fortunately never any serious trouble but I mean as a teenager yeah like I used to sneak out of home to go and go drinking with friends and I'd get into trouble and you know things like that but fortunately never anything serious like never I've never been in any serious accidents or been you know arrested or anything like that but yeah definitely got into a lot of trouble as a kid I <laughs> was a teenager.
1: Yeah so what about relationships did it impact your relationships?
2: You know what? I um I didn't think it did, of course. <laughs> Very typical alcoholic, where I just thought it was only impacting me. And I, I remember early in sobriety, I when I was starting to work through the steps, I remembered a time when I had a boyfriend. I was an adult when we were together. I was in my early 30s and when we broke up, he said to me, It's um, it's because you drink too much, Lindell. And I'd actually had a couple of drinks when he was telling me this. And I thought he said, I was like, what? I it's because I think too much and he was like no Linda because you drink too much (laughs) I was like oh wow (laughs) so that was probably the first time that I know of that it affected my relationship but I mean after that oh sorry before and after that I actually haven't had a lot of like serious relationships anyway and I think that I think definitely my drinking is one of the reasons why yeah I just didn't allow myself to get into relationships
3: Mm.
1: Okay. Well listen, I'll just swap over to Emma. So Emma, you're a child of an alcoholic. So what's it like growing up in an alcoholic family?
4: I think growing up in an alcoholic family, for me, there was always chaos going on around me. Just always chaos. And Dad was a drinker in our family. And so quite often there would be fights, there would be, you know, financial difficulty, there would be all sorts of things going on in the home itself but nobody ever talked about it nobody once we left the house it was our own silent secret and so for me that meant that I felt probably early on I sort of took the role of of the mother for my for my brothers and even for my mum at times as well like I would be that support person that would jump in and, and try and fix things all the time for people and yeah and that wanting to have a sense of control over what was uncontrollable and so for me that meant when it came to school for example when I was growing up I was super studious I was like I would never want to get into trouble I was always the one that would sit there and and listen and, and try and do everything perfectly which is the definition of insanity in itself. <laughs> but that was certainly growing up for me.
1: Yeah, it, it is a control mechanism, trying to keep everything under control, yeah. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, how did your friendships go when you had an alcoholic at home? It's difficult. So what's it like?
4: So early on, we lived, we grew up and I grew up in the country as well. And so it was always one of those things where we would never really have people over to our place. We would never have friends over. And even if we did, it was usually when dad was out of the house. So there was no sort of tension in the house because dad could make people feel very uncomfortable if he wasn't in the mood for people. So it was one of those sort of situations where we, if we wanted to go and catch up with friends, we would always go to their houses. We would never really have people over to our house. Uh, when we were really little, kids were over all the time, but Dad was on night shift then, so it was it was a free-for-all. But when we moved into the country and it was harder to get to places, we very rarely had people over to our house. I think too, you know, that night shifting meant Dad was sleeping during the day and you'd never want to wake the bear. But even talking about sort of what went on at home with friends, I found that was also really difficult growing up too because I quite often would tell people uh, one or two friends that I confided in and then when they would actually meet my dad, he was just so charming that they, they were like, I'm not sure your dad is really like that. So then then you start keeping secrets yourself and you stop telling people about anything that goes on and the craziness that goes on in the household because you realize that not everybody understands
1: that yeah my dad drank and I remember once telling some friends that his drinking was a problem and and they just looked at me and said everybody's dad drinks yeah (laughs) and they had no no idea what excessive drinking was and the impact on the family so how did it affect your relationships
4: For me, building trust with people, probably up until I found Al-Anon, it has been extremely difficult. And I always found, I fell into relationships with alcoholics as well. It was usually when I found an alcoholic, something seemed to click and it was exciting. and, And there was a familiarity in that relationship too. Uh, a familiarity in the in the drama and the, the things constantly going on, but you know when you grow up in that environment, that feels normal. And so I sort of I, I guess sort out those types of of people and relationships, and just kept the cycle going.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's predictable unpredictability. I guess you know it, you know it's going to happen. You're just not sure what. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Mm. So did you? Find leaving home meant that things changed for you?
4: No, I, I didn't at all. And I got out of home as soon as I could. I finished high school at sort of 16, 17, because I was a little bit earlier than the others going to university at that point in time. And I I ran. I got out of there. And then when I went to university, I found that the family problem didn't really shift for me. And I was constantly brought back into some of the dramas that were going on at that particular point in time as well. Dad eventually at that time he left our family for he had a relationship with his psychologist and so the cycle continued for him as well and he never really got the help that would have been great for him to have. And so even though I moved on multiple occasions, um, that that shift out of the home never really I never really found solace or or that separation from from that drama that was going on in the home. I was always brought back to it.
1: Mm. So what did that feel like?
4: Looking back now and even speaking to some of my friends since and they're like, Emma, you've always just been taking care of your family. You've never really spent time taking care of you. And it's probably only now I can look back and see that and, and understand that I spent hours on the phone when I was at university making sure everyone at home was okay <laughs> and it always occurred when I was in the middle of exams or had my own pressure moments going on but yeah and I think that sense of not having a family drama meant like you would always have that feeling like something else was going to go wrong if if there's not something going on now so for what's coming you never really have that that peace. yeah
1: yeah well back to you Lindel. so you said that You didn't really have relationship problems until you were in your 30s. So what was life like for you during that period? You know, what was a sort of a normal day like with with you drinking?
2: Yeah, um, by that stage, I was drinking daily, not necessarily during the day, but definitely by the time I'd finished work, you know, it was, you know, a good couple of bottles of wine or a six pack of beer and, you know, half a bottle of wine or whatever however much it was but it was drinking yeah every night so and I was socializing quite a bit too so I'd you know go out with friends after work or I'd just drink at home didn't really matter where I was as long as I was drinking but yeah definitely daily drinking by then and just drinking to accept like drinking to get drunk every night not not just having a casual glass of wine after work it was drinking to get drunk every night.
1: So how did that affect your work?
2: I didn't really think it did. And, you know, at the time I had a really good job and I was held in pretty high regard in my job. You know, I did really well. Like I had good results, like good figures. It was a sales-based job. And so I had, you know, a pretty good track record there. And I don't know, I look back on it now and I don't know how I did, but I somehow I just, you know, I drank every night. A lot of the time to blackout and I just got up and I went to work the next day and I just did it. I don't know. (laughs) I don't even know how I did it. (laughs)
1: It was normal,
2: yeah. It, it was normal. That's right, Bill. It was normal. Like it was just what I did every day. And you know, sometimes it would be, it'd be like, wow, well, I don't really think I drank that much, but man, I've got a hangover today. And you just, you know, you just work through the day and you drink again that night. Like it was just, yeah, it was definitely normal. And I just thought that was what a lot of people did too. Like I didn't realize that that was really that unusual. Like I, I knew there was other people that didn't necessarily drink every night, but I, you know, I knew a lot of people that drank very often. So I didn't really think it was that unusual.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Also, uh, well, we might take a short break there. Oh.
0: shouldn't be feeling this way but you came in my life and opened my eyes you made me feel some type of way I cannot describe I'm writing these lies cause truth is I ain't got no clue what it is to be loved or be someone's boo I'm only praying that it's you I'm hanging around in my time, come and be mine, you make me feel new, like old times, wish we could rewind, you make me feel new, oh, yeah, yeah, sometimes I feel you don't see me, In my.
1: Mokasha singing brand new courtesy of
3: Amrap
1: It's time to stand by us following the success of our free inaugural event last year by plus Collective Australia proudly presents the second Stand By Us forum to celebrate BiPlus Visibility Day. All events are free, and all bar one happen online. Starting with the opening First Nations keynote on the morning of Thursday 23rd September, Celebrate Bisexuality Day, there will be fun events like a BiPlus Games Meetup, artsy bi events including the bi performances, and panel discussions on themes such as queering relationships for those who are bi and polyamorous. To check out the program, including the Safe Space Guidelines, visit our webpage standbyus.com. That's S T A N D B I U S.com. It's time to
4: stand by us. A 3CR supporter.
0: Every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan.
1: You're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR. 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how you can contact us. Today, I'm talking with Lyndall and Emma about recovery and about the upcoming Park online convention by Zoom, which will be held on Saturday the 9th of October 2021. So, Lyndall, before the break, we were just talking about where your drinking was taking you. So I, I think you're in your mid-30s. So mm-hmm. how did your drinking progress and and what sort of things caused you to start looking for help?
2: Yeah, so pretty much by around my mid-30s-ish is uh, when my drinking went from just daily drinking, like in the evening, to drinking throughout the day you know it progressed over time of course as it does it wasn't just I didn't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden I was drinking every morning (laughs) but over time it it progressed and it it started with a lot of like having lunches and just going to the pub for lunch or something like that and then before I knew it I was drinking in the morning it was I was so uh taken by alcohol like I was so controlled by alcohol in the end and I was drinking so much that I'd wake up in the morning and I literally just couldn't even lift my head off the pillow without having a couple of shots of vodka before I could even get up and try and face the day. And so that was, you know, so it's having that in the morning and then more on the way to work and then, I'm, you know, throughout the morning and then lunch, you know, like all of a sudden I'm just drinking all throughout the day. It was a pretty tough time, you know, it was just constantly having to think all the time. It, it was pretty exhausting, you know, having to think all the time about, you know, do people know that I've been drinking? Do I smell like alcohol? Did I just laugh a little bit too loud? Are they going to know that I've, how you know, how am I going to disguise my alcohol today? How, you know, was this constant just obsession? And because I've always considered myself to be a, quite a very strong-willed and determined person, and I still, you know, I, I just was constantly like okay Lindor, just you know I was trying to make agreements with myself all the time like okay Lindor, just have one week off the booze, like you you drink all the time so just have one week off the booze, like just your body needs a rest you know and I you know by Monday afternoon I'm drinking sure enough like I just couldn't not drink and so the The obsession with drink, the obsession became not only about drinking, but about not drinking as well. And it was this constant argument in my head about don't do it, Lyndall. Yeah, do it. Don't do it. You know, just yes, no, yes, no. And it was starting to have some health effects i was getting a lot of pains in my chest I, by that point i'd go into full on withdrawal if i if i didn't drink and so the, by that stage it was sort of it became about like i had to drink you know like i had to drink sort of just to like to maintain some kind of level of normality because otherwise if i went into withdrawal it was like that was that was really quite brutal and and so yeah it was it was starting to affect my health obviously it was definitely starting to affect my work by that point, I was taking a lot of days off or, or coming in late to work. And I sort of flew under the radar for a long time with my boss because she wasn't very involved with the with my um office. She she lived in LA and I was in New York and she, yeah, she was a bit detached. So I sort of flew under the radar a lot, but there was a lot of mornings when I was coming into work late or just not coming in at all, having heaps of days off work. So it was really, it was starting to affect my health. It was starting to affect my work and I ended up in hospital to be treated with alcohol withdrawal. And that was sort of the point where I just, uh, you know, was like, okay, shit, I really need to do something about this. This is not, you know, this is not good. And so I still like, I just thought that I would be able to manage it. You know, I'm also a fiercely independent person. So I hadn't really told anybody at that point, not even my friends in um, New York. My family didn't really know because they were all on the other side of the world. Um, so I hid it from all of them and I didn't want to tell anyone and I just thought I, I'm just going to be able to figure this thing out for myself.
1: So what did you do? What was the first step to figuring it out?
2: Well, d- sort of just like I said, Bill, like just trying to make these these constant agreements with myself and I didn't understand that, you know, it hasn't worked before so there's no reason why it's going to work now but I just kept trying, like trying to have alcohol-free days or trying to not drink And then I tried to, you know, like switch my drinks. I tried to only drink beer because it's lower alcohol content or I tried to, you know, only drink at home or not drink at home, you know, like all of these different sorts of things that I tried. I also went to moderation management meetings in New York um, where they give you tips on how to moderate your drinking. And I honestly didn't understand at that point that I was well beyond that either. Like I I just, you know, I thought, okay, this is going to help me. And obviously it didn't, my, my drinking just kept getting worse. And eventually I I had considered, you know, the idea of Alcoholics Anonymous had had floated around in my mind for probably a good couple of years. And by around that point, there was a friend at work who I'd finally opened up to and told her and she suggested I go to AA. And at the time I was like, oh, no, don't be silly. I'm not that bad. Like, it'll be fine. <laughs> But anyway, I eventually dragged myself through the, through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and it was incredible because I, I really thought that my drinking was unique. Like I knew that I wasn't the only person that was an alcoholic and I knew that I wasn't the only person that drank a lot, but I thought that the way that I drank and the thoughts that I had around my drinking, I thought that was all really unique to me but yeah I walked into this meeting of alcoholics anonymous and I sat there and I listened to a whole bunch of people who were just like me so it was like wow it was like a it was like a big weight that had lifted off I just thought wow okay if these people you know there there was a lot of people that had you know really extreme circumstances a lot worse than me and I thought if these guys can you know turn their lives around and be happy then surely I can too
1: and and did it work
2: not straight away you know like even though I did have that and I had hope when I walked out of that first AA meeting I didn't stop drinking at that point that was probably about four or five years ago and I kept drinking and you know my ego was in charge like I just kept thinking I'm going to be able to work this out I don't really need a program like AA I don't really need you know this I'll just be able to do it myself And so, yeah, I kept drinking and my drinking kept getting worse. And it got to the point where I was fired from my job in America. So I had to move back to Australia and I was fired because of my drinking. And I came back here sort of with my tail between my legs and was like, you know, it was a massive blow to my ego. And I was like, really like, okay, well, this, you really need to sort this out now, Lindell. But I didn't. I kept drinking. I didn't. I had every intention of coming home and telling my opening up to my family and telling them, but I didn't tell them straight away. And I kept drinking. And of course, when I moved back to Australia, I was living in Torquay with my sister and I had to get a car um, because obviously there's no 24 hour subway like there is in New York. (laughs) So uh, then you throw drink driving into the mix. And yeah, that's when things got scary. Unfortunately, I didn't have an accident but I did have a night when I drove my car in blackout I have no recollection whatsoever that yeah scared the the living daylights out of me and it it was a day or two after that that I went to an AA meeting here in Torquay and got serious about my recovery
1: yeah so what does getting serious mean to you
2: well, I I'd stopped drinking, you know, like I I, went, I started going to a lot of AA meetings and I stopped drinking. But I will say, I mean, even though it was her more concerted effort at, at trying to get sober, I still thought that I was going to be able to do it my way. So I joined the AA program and I was doing a lot of meetings, but I didn't get a sponsor and I didn't do the step work. I didn't do any service work like I didn't do any of the other suggested things I just thought I'll I'll be able to just go to a few meetings and I'll pick and choose what I want from this program and everything will be fine (laughs) so that's why it's you know I've been in the fellowship over three and a half years and I and you know just coming up to one year sober again because my ego's still been in charge and yeah the first couple of years there was a lot of you know periods four or five months here and there of sobriety and then relapsing and then going back you know getting back into AA and then relapsing There's quite a bit of that and yeah finally I got myself a sponsor I've had a couple of sponsors now but I yeah finally got a really good sponsor and I've done all the step work and I I I work the program now which is great (laughs) making some progress
1: it's amazing what happens when you take it seriously isn't it
2: yeah yeah
1: yeah. Uh well I'll swap over to you, Emma. So you're talking about being at uni, leaving home, still feeling really responsible for home. So what was it that caused you to seek help?
4: So for me, I kept moving. So I moved overseas, I moved interstate, I just I kept moving. I moved to Melbourne, so I grew up into the in the country. I moved everywhere. And then eventually when I came back to Australia, ended up in Sydney for work I just always had this feeling that it was just something not not right with me I never fitted in anywhere I never felt like I never felt like I belonged I always felt like there was just something different yeah so at work they ran a meditation seminar and um, it was run by a psychologist and at the end of that session I spoke to the psychologist thinking I needed to do more meditation, to sort of manage my stress levels and those sorts of things in the job. And once we started doing some sessions together, it came out, it was the first time I realised that my dad had a drinking problem. It was never spoken about in the family, so we never actually acknowledged that there was a drinking problem in the family. And then eventually, not long after that, dad tried to hurt himself, self-harm, And as a result of that, you know, she mentioned, and it was the first time he started talking about himself being an alcoholic. And it was at that point when I started working with her that she mentioned Al-Anon. So I tried my first Al-Anon meeting up there in Sydney, but it didn't really, it didn't really stick with me at that point in time. Dad got some help and then kind of returned back to, to drinking again, straight after that and within a couple of years I had to move back to Melbourne which is where the family is so I moved back into the family drama one more time and it was at that point in time where dad self-harmed again and I knew I needed support at this point because my family was quite estranged from my dad he was by that stage divorced from my mum and my brothers weren't weren't really in contact with him Um, but I always had this feeling of responsibility for everybody in the family including dad <laughs> and so it was at that point because of the, the conversation with the psychologist that I went to my first I meeting and, and actually quite similar to what Lyndall said I heard the stories in the room and it stuck I realized at that point there are people here that understand what I'm going through there are people here that I can talk to and my problem's are manageable and they gave me tools to help me deal with the situation that I was dealing with so at that stage dad was in hospital and the old Emma would have been running backwards and forwards He was in Geelong I was in Melbourne cleaning clothes managing food buying groceries you know organizing his budget but because of the program I realized he just needs to go through this himself and I have to take care of myself so I started learning to cook for myself and make sure that I wasn't eating on the run and that I did my own washing first before I took care of anybody else I just started to do those little things for me and that was when the program really really stuck for me
1: so how did your family respond to the fact that you were not intervening
4: it is and still is really hard my family still don't have a program And when I talk about alcoholism with the rest of my family being a family disease and my grandfather was an alcoholic and his grandfather was an alcoholic. So it is intrepid in my family. It goes back generations in my family. When I talk about it being a disease with my, with my mom or my brothers, they don't get it. They fight that, that concept. They can't accept that concept for me. To be honest with you, the first time I came into the program and went to my first Vicky Park convention and I heard, I sat in and listened to some of the AA speakers talk about alcoholism for them, that was the first time I truly understood nobody chooses this, nobody chooses this life and that was at that point in time where I truly was able to accept that it's a disease that I have no control over and managing those relationships to be honest with you, now with my dad, is amazing. We've got a great relationship. But the rest of the family can at times be quite estranged because they they don't understand the relationship that I have with dad and they don't understand, you know, the, the disease of alcoholism.
1: Yeah. So did your dad get back to AA?
4: He went in and out of programs, unfortunately, a few times. And no, he, he never stuck with with the program, which is a real shame, but... For me, the Alanon program has allowed me to accept that him for who he is, and now he's actually he got to the point last year where uh, once again he's drinking really took over in a really bad way, and he got hospitalised one more time, and now he's in aged care, and quite quickly too, it was uh, he now has a, an alcohol related dementia, and. He, he's, but it's so funny. He still has what they talk about, you know, the isms of being an alcoholic. And he, yeah, he's still, he's still, he's still dad. <laughs> I don't love him that way.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is amazing how you can change your attitude towards somebody and accept them. And I, and I agree that, you know, listening to alcoholics talk about being an alcoholic certainly changed my understanding of my father and why he drank. He drank because he couldn't cope, not because he was trying to cause problems, and that's a really big understanding.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, well, so we might take another short break. There's also Macasia singing Help, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
0: 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system.
2: 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach.
0: And I'm
1: Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars Prison Broadcast.
0: 20 years on the inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration.
1: Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family. It's how you care about your cousins. It's how you care about your people. That's
3: That's what this is about for me.
0: Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favorite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday.
4: What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law.
1: Tune in to Done By Law.
4: An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives.
3: Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. <laughs>
1: This is Living Free on 3CR, on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Lyndall and Emma about recovery and also about the Vicky Park Online Convention that's being held on Saturday the 9th of October 2021. So I'll start with you, Lyndall. You got into AA and your life started improving. Yes. And you got serious about the steps and sponsorship.
2: Yes.
1: And that sort of leads on to to service in AA. So do you want to talk about why you got involved in service in AA?
2: Yes, definitely. So earlier in my recovery, I was—I became the secretary of my home group, which oh, I was a co-secretary, so there was two of us, and we took it in turns to open up the meeting and, um, you know, set out all the chairs and get everything ready for the meeting. And I did that for, I think I was secretary for about a year, that was incredible because it forced me to go to my meetings. So there was definitely times when I was like, oh, I can't be bothered going to a meeting or where I thought, you know, like, oh, maybe I don't really need to go to meetings, you know, when my ego was still still trying to convince me that everything was okay. But because I had the key and if I didn't go and open up the meeting, then everybody else wouldn't be able to have the meeting. I, like, I had to go. So it was amazing. I, I, I really feel like that having that service role, really you know it kept me accountable and it kept me in the program at times when my ego was trying to get me out of the program so that was really good to do early on and since then I still have service roles so I'm the group service representative for my group which means that I represent my group at district and area level and I'm also the Geelong district secretary So I'm the secretary for the district. So I have to, you know, arrange for the the district meetings to happen and take the minutes and all that sort of stuff. And again, I just think that it, it keeps me accountable. It keeps me in the program. It keeps me really entrenched in the program, I think, especially having a service role at a district level. And that's exactly why I took on the district secretary role, because I wanted to make sure that I'm just, you know, I've got all my hands and feet and fingers and toes well entrenched into this program so that I can't go anywhere because I don't want to. <laughs> yeah,
1: one of the good things about service is the people you meet. Yes. Because I think there's a lot of inspiring people out there who come through really difficult things and working with them on stuff, you get to know them a lot better.
2: Definitely. Yeah. I also do. We do. We're pretty active in the. We have a roster in here in Geelong to go to the rehabs and the and the Geelong withdrawal unit. So I've done quite a few of those. I've gone a represented, you know, AA and spoken to people in rehab about AA. And of course, I, you know, I, I give my number to all of the newcomers that come into the meetings as well, and just try and do what I can to to help out. You know, there are a huge amount of people that helped me to get sober was you know the the whole fellowship helped me to get sober so yeah it's it's good to be able to pay that forward and and try and help other people
1: Yeah it is isn't it So Emma how about you service is important in Alanon so were you involved in Alanon service before you got involved in Park? Yeah
4: yeah I was I started off being the treasurer of my my regular group like think week three in I, I became treasurer everyone ends up if you're willing you end up getting a role and it's been great for me from from treasurer I went on to then being the district treasurer and also uh, then moving into the Vicky Pal role as well so I've done a few service positions now and you're right Bill it, it's a chance to meet people that have got great recovery and you really see how the program can work over time and and it also for me I find it helps me understand the program better I have got more of a chance to be exposed to you know the the tools that help you get recovery and you're always then in sort of entrenched in those tools and it's funny you can you can read something one time early in your recovery and go back to it a little bit later on and you, you've you got a different perspective on it and it helps you out in a different way. So the tools of the program keep giving and I think service is where you really get to learn and understand those tools.
3: Yeah
1: so how many years have you been involved in the Vicky part?
4: Vicky part I've been involved with now for three years. Yeah I think it's three yes it's gone quickly. One of them was obviously a lockdown last year so This year, we've been able to to not miss another Vicky Parr because we really didn't want to do that and go online, which is fantastic. Now with Zoom, it gives us the capability to to be able to continue with Vicky Parr online through Zoom.
1: Yeah, I I think that's really good. There's been a few online things, but it's been difficult to get interaction. And one of the things you miss it online is the face-to-face sharing and, you know, meeting people. So is there a an ability to do that at the at Power this year or not?
4: You're right, you probably don't get the chance to have those uh, chat around the, the coffee machine and some of those sorts of things that you normally would. But I think through the Vicky Park meetings, uh meetings, certainly that we've got across the AA program and across the Alanorm program, which is now available on the website, we will we'll have the opportunity to share and see people face to face and then also. Listen to others sharing as well. There's not a scheduled casual catch up at this stage, Bill, but who knows? It's a great suggestion. We might include it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's pretty difficult to pull off, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I've been to a few Vicky Power's over the years, and they've, they've certainly changed venues a lot and, and changed formats um, a lot. But it, it's really nice to catch up and see a lot of people there. And I guess the other feature of Vicky Power is the International guests. So, have you got an international guest this year?
4: Yeah, we do have an international guest this year. So, the speaker this year will be Tracy from California, uh, from the USA. So, she'll be our, our guest speaker this year. And, and I think the beauty of the way the program will work this year as well is that all of the rooms that are available during those time slots will be available. So, you know, if you're from Alanon and you want to go and check out an AA program, you can jump into that room during that time slot. So you've got options to choose whatever you want to do online. And same for AA members. If they want to jump into an Al-Anon meeting, Um, you've got the accessibility to do that just at a click and a button. So it's really exciting.
1: Yeah. So is there two or three meetings on at the same time?
4: There are. There'll be two meetings on two to three meetings on for AA throughout the day, depending on um, the level of interest within the topic. And there's also steps running all day for the AA program. And similarly, the Al-Anon program will have two meetings running almost at all times, except for the start of the day. We're going to have a spiritual concept meeting in the morning to get everybody together. And then there will be um, steps meetings, there'll be service meetings, and there will be meetings for adult children.
1: Okay, that sounds really good. I understand you planned it to be a a live event, but because of COVID, it's got to be online. Yeah. So was that difficult, making that decision to not cancel it and just take it online?
4: It was really difficult. Everybody, I think, across the entire committee was hanging out to try and keep a live event. We were all really looking forward to seeing each other face-to-face. The Vicky Parr committee this year hasn't even seen each other face-to-face yet, so... (laughs) Uh, it's one of those things that we were re- we sort of left it quite a while before we made the decision, but in the end we, we had to call um, a, an emergency meeting and, and make the decision before it was too late to go online. Yeah.
1: So did you think of postponing it or was that, was that fraught with given our history of two years of lost opportunity?
4: We did. We did talk about that, uh, it, but we had... To postpone it last year because of COVID last year, and we didn't want to go two years without a Vicky Par down here in Victoria. It's too important. Like I know from from my recovery, this really was one of those key moments that helped me understand the Eleanor program and continue and get recovery through the Eleanor program, and you know be able to support my dad through what he's been through as well. So. We were just
1: not willing to to not do another year at VikiPAR. Yeah, yeah, I, I support that. Uh, one of the features of VikiPAR too is not only the international speaker but going through the steps and having meetings that just go through step by step. So, Ben, would you just want to talk about the importance of the steps yeah, and understanding and talking about and, I guess, um, making them part of your life?
2: Mm. Yes, the steps are really important. I mean, I think all of the things that are suggested within the program are, are all important, but, yeah, the steps are really important. I mean, just being able to go through things like doing a, a step forward, taking a personal inventory and having a good hard look at myself and, and who I've wronged in the past, you know, going through a process like that is something that, my, you know, like general people just don't don't often do been a real eye-opener for me to do that I didn't realize that I had many character defects until I did that <laughs> but um, you know it's about getting honest with myself and because obviously in my drinking there was a lot of dishonesty with myself mostly with other people as well but there was a lot of dishonesty with myself so it's about getting really honest with myself and having a really honest look at myself and who, who I am and, and what I need to work on and who I, you know, who I've harmed in the past. And then, you know, once you get to like a step nine and, and making your amends, I actually got up to step nine twice working with a sponsor and then relapsed on step nine. And um, now that I've finally done it this year, I've made amends, I haven't quite finished all of my amends, but I've done most of them and now I'm sort of like, I don't know what you were, you were making this all way too difficult, Mm Linda. You know, it it sounds really confronting to sort of, you know, have that sit in front of a person and be accountable for your behaviour and, you know, acknowledge how you've hurt somebody. That sounds like a really confronting and difficult thing to do. And, in some ways, it is, but I guess I was really lucky because everyone who i've made amends with so far has has been amazing and and some of them were even like, "I feel like I should apologize to you, Linda. I just wish I could have done more to help you you know so I've been really lucky in that respect, but at the same time, I mean, even if they were difficult, there's so much freedom that you get from from doing that, from going through that process you know all of the steps equally are as important you know spirituality has become. A really big thing for for me since I've worked this program. Like I, I um, consider myself atheist all of my adult life, and so using the word God was really difficult for me when I came into the program. But I understand now, you know, the difference between spirituality and and religion. And I and you know, my God is really important. I pray twice a day. I meditate. You know, I do all of these things that are suggested, and I know that if I keep doing these things, then I've got a really good chance of staying sober. Because without them, yeah, without them, I've, I didn't stay sober. But yeah, it's um, it's been really, it's really important for me to practice that all the time and to and to live and breathe it and just be honest with myself and be honest with other people.
1: Yeah. So, um, how's it changed your life being in AA or being sober? I should say.
2: Mm, well, AA has saved my life, definitely but yeah look uh, every every part of my life has changed since I got sober and all in positive ways you know if i look back at at the end of my drinking i was you know i was just i was carrying so much anger and resentment around with me and i was you know very judgmental and critical of people and i was just so intolerant and um i wasn't in a very good mental health space and I just sort of feel like I was living in this angry, dark little world. And these days, you know, I try and come at place, everything from a place of love. I really practice love and acceptance and tolerance. And, you know, these these are the sorts of things that I'm taught in the program. You know, the serenity process at all, like I've got to accept what I can't change and have the courage to change the things I can. And and this is what the program has taught me. And it, it's just a much more peaceful way of living for me than being just feeling like I'm constantly fighting everyone including myself and being angry with people (laughs) yeah so it's amazing I've just like you know my life is is wonderful these days compared to when I was drinking and um I've got yeah AA to thank for that
1: yeah so what about family have you managed to reconcile with your family
2: I, there's still some amends that I need to do with um, some of my family members. I'm I'm very fortunate that all of my uh, family have been incredibly supportive um, throughout all of this. All of my family know, you know exactly um, where I'm at now. I'm I'm an open book these days, and um, yeah, they've been really incredible and supportive and loving through all of it. There's there's some certain family members that don't really get it, and that's okay. But yeah, they've all been amazing. So. Couple of official amends to make, I guess, but you know I've been making a living amends for the last couple of years, which is important too.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think the living amends is a pretty important part of uh, recovery. Yeah, it's making the decision not to cause any more problems for anybody. Yeah, and yeah, it tests you out, but yeah, it's (laughs) it's a better way to live.
2: Absolutely, it is absolutely. Yeah.
1: So how about you, Emma? So how's your life different today? with the help of Eleanor,
4: I think my life's different today with the help of Eleanor because what I didn't realize is, and you know, through the step process, one of the things that I've learned is that sometimes my willingness to help, it, it actually means that I'm stopping people from living their, their own lives, that I'm, I'm actually not helping them. And going through that step step four process of going through the steps for me taught me a a lot of what I thought I was doing to help people wasn't actually really helping people and you know understanding that I need to take care of me before I before I start running around trying to to save the rest of my family and to give them the space to grow I need to let them do that by themselves and that's been a big thing that that the programs and the steps have really taught me and you think to you know how can um somebody in elanon harm people you know but the steps have taught me that sometimes you know your willingness to do good is actually doing harm and i know i've learned that and and, you know had to make amends for some of those things myself so i've learned a lot about self-care and i'm much less judgmental now and accepting of, of others as well including the others in my in my family that don't have a program that don't understand you know, the relationships that I have with my dad and some of those sorts of things as well. But I'm much more relaxed around those relationships now as well. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. So this year's Vicky Parr Convention is going to be held on Saturday the 9th of October 2021 via Zoom. And you can access the details on their website, which is vickypar.org. And the event's going to be free and anyone can join at any time. The updated website... Has all the program links of the meetings for the day, and everybody who'd like to attend can attend. Well, thank you both for um, your time. If anybody would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can find them on 1300 222, 222 or go online at aa.org.au for more information and details of local AA meetings. And if you want information about Alan and family groups, you can find them on 1300 252 666, or go online at alanon.org.au. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Lyndall and Emma for sharing their recovery experience with us and talking about the Vicky Power Online Convention. Thank you both.
2: Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Bill.
1: Pleasure. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when Maya from Alanon Family Groups will be sharing her recovery experience. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. <laughs>